0: Hello, and welcome to the Antioch Fort Worth weekly podcast. At Antioch, our desire is to cultivate a passion for Jesus and his purposes on the earth. To connect with us in community, partner with us through giving, or visit on a Sunday morning, please visit AntiochFortWorth.com. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon from lead pastor, Jamie Miller. If any of you have seen me recently at the parking lot services, you may have noticed that I've adopted the full-brimmed hat look, because at... Some time ago, I came to the realization that I'm a very pale person. And when I was younger and less wise than I am now, I used to think, I don't need any sun protection, I'm tough, I can handle this. And those proclamations were usually followed by seasons of intense suffering. And so I grew in wisdom, and I began to put sunscreen on my exposed skin, and everything was working well for a while. But see, this thing happens as a man when you start to get a little bit older, where suddenly the hair on the top of your head may not be quite as thick as it once was. No sneaking up behind me to sneak a peek. Just trust me on this. And so I would step outside, and I think I'm good, and I think I'm safe, and then another season of intense suffering. And so at this point, whenever I go outside for any period of time, I try to have a hat on my head. And it's, I've started to realize that there are some hats that I really like, and I really enjoy wearing hats, and I've embraced it as something that I really enjoy doing. And it's gotten to the point where I was a and somebody was introducing our team, and they're like, this is Uriah, he's the loud guy, and this is Jason, he's the hat guy. And I'm fine with that. It's no longer burdensome. It's just what I do so I can walk in joy and peace. And so I admonish all of you, whenever you step out into the Texas summer, you need to protect yourself before you wreck yourself. All right? So now my journey of growth right there, it mirrors a four-stage path of transformation that's been found and multiple cultures across many generations. The first stage is one of awakening, where you begin a new journey or a new line of inquiry. The second stage is the time of trial, where there is often struggle or suffering. It's a difficult time that brings about a new and a hard-won understanding. The third stage is marked by the gift of an enlarged comprehension and wholeness, a greater perspective, often with a sense of outside assistance. And the fourth stage involves actual practice of the wisdom gained, a season of bringing the knowledge back to the community and giving back to benefit those who come after the journeyer. And I was reading a book recently that was making the claim that when you read the four Gospels in the order they've traditionally been read of Matthew, Mark, John, and Luke, that each Gospel asks a question that will take you on the same four stage journey. Matthew asks the question how do we face change? Mark asks how do we move through suffering? John asks, how do we receive joy? And Luke finishes the journey asking, how do we mature in service? And while I don't want to get up here today and spend too much time trying to prove or disprove this guy's assumptions, it's been an interesting thought process for me to try and look at the four gospel journey through this mindset. It's compelling to me to look at the gospel of Mark as a book about what we do with suffering, especially when you take into account who his original audience was. Mark is believed to have been written, the earliest of the Gospels, written in the mid-60s to Messianic Jews who were living in Rome. Now in the year 64, there was a massive fire that burned throughout Rome, burned down a big part of the city, countless lives were lost, and rumors began to surface that the emperor at the time, Nero, Nero was the one who was responsible for the fires because he wanted to jumpstart plans to rebuild it in a fashion that he liked. So Nero was in need of a scapegoat. So he looked to a part of town that hadn't been impacted by the fires, the Jewish section of town. And this part was on the outskirts of Rome. It was across a river, which is why it hadn't burned. But they were about to become the answer to Nero's predicament. The Jewish people got wind of this, and they were naturally afraid. they had only recently been able to return to Rome after a previous exile. And because of this, someone from the community went to the emperor and identified the culprits as the Messianic Jews, the Christ followers. So Nero demanded that the community cooperate with Roman soldiers to identify these Christ followers, and a mini-genocide began. Soldiers went through the quarter knocking door to door and demanding to know if anyone in the house was a Christ follower, and if there was, it meant death for everyone in the house. And if there wasn't, they demanded that you name somebody who was to betray someone else in your community. So those identified as Christ followers were arrested and they were executed in terrible ways. Many were chained up and splattered with blood, and they would release wild, hungry dogs on them. Others were taken to Nero's parties, where they were notoriously covered in oil and used as torches at the parties. These people had found the Christ. They could not go back to the beginning because they were forever changed, but they were facing terrible fear, terrible suffering, and terrible betrayal. In this context, it makes sense that Mark's gospel would be written through a lens of helping them navigate through suffering, designed to show them the Christ and how he responded to those who were suffering. The word euthis, which we translate as immediately, is used 59 times in the book of Mark. When Jesus encountered suffering in situations where he could lift it, he didn't just talk about it, he didn't just pontificate about it, he acted, and he acted quickly. But more importantly... What do we see when Christ himself encounters suffering that he could not and should not change? A suffering that is necessary. We find a Christ who not only genuinely understood their suffering, but was there with them as they suffered. A Christ who modeled for them, as Julia talked about last week, how to turn to the Father in the midst of your suffering. With that in mind, it helps see more clearly what Mark is trying to point out to his original audience and to us, because we're stepping into Mark 15, and in many ways, this is the apex of Christ's suffering as we move from the trial before Pilate through the burial of Jesus. So we'll start in verse 1. It says, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. So Judea was a subject nation under a Roman prefect named Pilate. And anytime there were going to be as many people in the city of Jerusalem as there were for Passover, Pilate would be there to try and keep everything under control. The Jewish re- leaders, they realized it would be risky to try to kill Jesus themselves because the people could turn on them. And if a riot started when Pilate was in town, it wasn't going to end well for anyone. So they're trying to push it off on the government to do it for them. And Mark skips the part where they tell Pilate what Jesus is accused of. We have to infer that from what Pilate asks Jesus. But they don't come accusing him of claiming to be the Messiah because he would have said, well, that's a religious matter. That's not my jurisdiction. I'm only worried about civil matters. And so you can go take him away and handle your own religious stuff. But instead, they come and say that this man is claiming to be the king of the Jews. And to claim to be a king... Is setting yourself up as a rival to Caesar. That's sedition. That's a civil matter that Pilate would have to try. The irony of the situation is that what many of these Jewish leaders wanted was a military political messiah, but Jesus refused to be that for them. And that's part of the reason they wanted to have him killed. So how do they have him killed? They accuse him of being a military-political messiah. So Pilate asks him, You're the king of the Jews? And Jesus gives him a brief answer of, you say. He could have answered, no, I'm not, and the trial would have been over. Or he could have said, yes, I am, and Pilate would have taken him away to be killed. He gave the one response that would keep the trial going, basically saying, yeah, but not in the way that you think. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him, you have no answer to make. See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. So Pilate, during his time as the prefect, executed over 2,000 people. He knew how these trials usually went. When somebody is facing death, they're going to blubber on, they're going to try to refute the accusations, they're going to try to gain favor with Pilate, but Jesus remained silent, and it kind of unnerved Pilate. We read in the other Gospels that Pilate says, I don't want anything to do with this guy, and he tries to push it off, but the Jewish leaders threatened to report him to Caesar. And Pilate already wasn't in the best graces of his superiors. So accusations that he was ignoring an insurrectionist that was claiming to be king was not something he could afford. But he tries to find one last loophole, because during the Passover, it was celebrating the Jewish people's liberation from Egypt. So Rome had said, whenever you have a Passover, we will liberate someone for you. So he asked them in verse 9, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy, that the chief priests had delivered him up. He gave them another option of Barabbas, a man who had killed people in a recent insurrection attempt. Pilate realizes Jesus isn't an insurrectionist. They just don't like him. So Pilate tries to say, so y'all are worried about insurrection, huh? Let me show you a real insurrectionist, a guy who murdered people trying to overthrow, overthrow Rome in a military political coup. If you're concerned about sedition, this is your guy. So which one do you want? He puts... Before them, two heroes, one who says, I come teaching the words of God, calling you to repent and seek him, to have a heart filled with love. Then here's another hero who's using muscle to try to militarily overthrow the government. Which kind of king do you want? One of intimacy with God and love or one of aggression and violence? And the crowd screams their answer that we want Barabbas. They had no interest in a suffering Savior. They wanted a conquering Christ. And Pilate, he has no interest in justice, just in maintaining the peace. So he has Jesus scourged and sent on to be crucified. And this abdication of justice in exchange for expediency would have really resonated with Mark's original audience. Because as I mentioned before, they were experiencing Nero doing the same thing by placing the blame for the burning of Rome on the Christ followers they would have felt this betrayal deeply because both Pilate and Nero abandoned obvious truth for what was expedient and politically popular. God, protect us from making the same mistake. May we have hearts for true justice, not just for what's easiest, what we're used to, or what my friends and my family or my coworkers believe is the right thing to do. Help us to bring the kingdom into circumstances and not more pain because it's easier on us. I want you to think about the absurdity of this scene. I don't know why, maybe from seeing different reenactments of it, but I used to picture this as just a handful of soldiers that were messing with Jesus. But you see where Mark says they called together the whole battalion or cohort. That's 500 to 600 people mocking him, yelling at him, hitting him. Jesus is standing there wrapped in purple, the color of royalty, a crown of thorns upon his head. In this moment, Mark juxtaposes the childishness and brutality of those representing the governing power versus the dignity and the royalty of Jesus. Then they took him to be crucified. And while he was being crucified, they derided him. The word they use there is blasphemy, which is ironic because in the courts they accused Jesus of blasphemy, but they were the ones who were guilty of it. And Roman crucifixion was not an efficient way of killing someone. It was designed for maximum pain and maximum humiliation, and and to let the crowds know that you do not mess with Rome. And at one point, they offered him myrrh mixed with wine, which would have had a a pain-relieving effect, and he refused it. And so you have to ask yourself, why would he go through all of this? Why couldn't it have been avoided, or why couldn't he have taken a shortcut that wasn't so painful for so long? We can't lose sight of the fact That Christ didn't find himself here by accident. He intentionally and purposefully has moved towards the cross. He has told his disciples multiple times this is where he is headed. He has a goal in mind, a goal of restoration and reconciliation. And in order to achieve that goal, he has to go through the pain, he has to go through the suffering in order to heal what was broken. He knew that he could not and should not avoid it. The wages of sin are death. The result of sin is a separation from God, and every one of us has fallen short. Each and every one of us has earned that fate, but God loved us so much, he wasn't willing to leave us in that place. He loved us so much that he sent Jesus to pay the price for us. But in order for that to work, he couldn't circumvent it a watered down light version of the cost would have been meaningless it would have been a mockery it would have left things unresolved he had to go through it it had to be worked through to completion restoration and reconciliation were that important they were worth going through the hurt but it was so hard but because he did that work he was not he was able to not only restore us to the father but to be put his spirit within us, put a new heart in us. And that heart, to this day, still cries out for restoration and reconciliation. But folks, this is so hard. And so many times, in order to get there, we have to go through the pain. We have to do the hard thing. But we do not like doing that oftentimes. Sometimes there is something that damages our relationships, and we're content to leave things the way they are. We'd rather leave the fissure and brokenness as it is because the separation is deserved after what they did. And we want them to know it and we want everyone else to know it. We have been wronged and we want to hold on to that air of being aggrieved. We want to hold on to that air of superiority. I think for us as Christians, we're really prone to try to shortcut it. We should be people who are quick to forgive, but sometimes we use the language of forgiveness a little too flippantly without truly addressing the hurt. It's a really attractive option for us because by saying we've forgiven somebody, it brings praise from those around us. We're lauded for our spirituality and our maturity. But then you wake up the next morning or a few weeks later or a few years later, and that feeling of hurt and anger and resentment is still there, lurking just beneath the surface. We have to remember there's a difference between being a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. When we look at the life of Christ, he didn't ever avoid conflict or hardship for the sake of keeping the peace. He stepped into it. He stepped through it. And sometimes this means having some hard conversations with people. There's a reason why the Bible tells us if we have conflict with a brother or sister, we should go to them. Sometimes, though, the issue is more about what's going on inside of our heart. It's our heart being too sensitive. It's not really about the person. Or sometimes it's a situation where it's not safe or healthy to reengage that relationship. In those instances, it means taking a hard, looking, hard look at our hearts and asking, why has this taken root here? What lies am I believing that are causing me to hang on to this hurt so tightly that are preventing me from giving true forgiveness? And y'all, there are times when we'll do the work and those feelings will crop up again, and we have to pray through it some more. But when we try to shortcut the process, we lose sight of the goal of restoration and reconciliation and settle for not making waves, be that relationally or internally, which in the end proves to be meaningless because it doesn't address the root. And at other times we try to ignore it or distract from it or desensitize ourselves to it. We try to diminish it in our heads as it's not that big of a deal, denying the inventory we may need to do internally. We keep ourselves so busy and distracted and where we don't have to think about it or we medicate it away with alcohol or pharmaceuticals or anything that will give us that dopamine hit where we don't have to feel or deal with the hurt. But inside, it grows and it eats away at us. It steals our joy and it damages our other relationships. Now, you may say, Jason, you don't know. You don't understand what I've been through. You don't understand how much they hurt me. You don't understand how hard that would be and you may be right. I may not, but he does. He knows what it's like to be betrayed, abandoned, to be mocked, abused and beaten and slandered because he didn't circumvent it the hard. He didn't take a shortcut and even though we're the ones who did it to him, he still continued to move through the hurt, to move through the suffering to restore and reconcile us to him. Wow. Picking back up in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. So over the years, some people have claimed that Mark's passion shows Jesus bitter and confused, but this would be inconsistent with Mark's message to the Messianic Jews. The crucifixion is both heart-rending and heart filling. It's the image of Jesus painfully yet exultantly moving into his final moment of his human life, fully awake. You see, Jewish tradition at the time called for pious Jews to die with the words of Psalm 22 on their lips. Jesus, in this moment, is reciting the first words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This would have been similar to a Christian praying, Our Father who art in heaven. While Jesus certainly felt despair, this moment is a triumphant, this this moment is a triumphant suffering because every devout Jew would have known Psalm 22 from beginning to end. Yes, it begins with why have you forsaken me? But then it speaks of being mocked and despised. It says they have pierced my hands and my feet. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And then it ends by saying, the whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and return to him. All the families, the nations will bow down before him. For royal power belongs to the Lord. He rules all the nations. Let the rich of the earth feast and worship. Bow before him, all who are mortal, all whose lives will end as dust. Our children will also serve him. Future generations will hear about the wonders of the Lord. His righteous acts will be told to those not yet born. They will hear about everything he has done. Jesus is reminding us in this moment that sure, this is where we are, but this is who I am and this is where we're going. Yes, Christ is indeed betrayed. He is certainly bloodied and alone. Not a single one of his disciples is noted as having been around him as he died. But Mark gives no indication that Jesus surrendered to bitterness or resentment. To the contrary, Jesus calmly and repeatedly predicted his fate to his disciples. And though he is distressed at Gethsemane, his prayer is clear. He accepts the necessity of his suffering and his death if that is God's will for him. The shame and the mockery that are heaped upon him by the soldiers and those around the cross, they do not affect him. He refuses the wine. There is intense suffering and great sadness. He ends his life with crying out. But ever since his teaching at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus has been telling his followers suffering must be endured, but through it all, you must stay connected to God. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It was, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. So the curtain tore from top to bottom. It was clear that it wasn't torn by man. It was torn by God, saying there is no more need for atonement. There is no more need for intermediaries. It is finished. It is finished. And the words of that Roman centurion would have been meaningful to the Messianic Jews Mark was writing to. With the persecution they were facing, many of them had a Roman centurion in their future. They would be surrounded by strangers and enemies, shackled and dying and taunted. Mark here provides them an encouragement to help them understand that the manner of their suffering, the manner of their death contained the seed of conversion. It could proclaim the reality of Jesus the Christ that could be carried forward to coming generations. I think often that we, when we think about our suffering as a witness, we only think about it in the aftermath. That I was going through this terrible thing, and then God, then God came and healed me. Yay, God! And we should celebrate those moments when those happen. When that's a story, we should definitely celebrate that. But our witness also entails when we sit there, Good. feeling broken. When the circumstances don't change, and we respond, even here, I will trust you. Even here, I will still turn to you. Lord, help me to accept this and stay awake to how you have the power to redeem even this moment. Help me to stay connected to the Father, to use all the energy I have left to proclaim God's love, even now, even here. If we can do that, we can still walk in joy in spite of our circumstances. We're not always going to be happy. Happiness is fleeting, but joy is something deeper. Joy is knowing that God knows my suffering, and he is with me, and he can redeem it. And while in this life I'm going to have trouble, I know that this isn't the end of the story. I know that in the end, there's a kingdom coming in its fullness where there will be no more suffering, where there will be no more pain or betrayal or broken hearts or broken families a kingdom where I'm going to sit at the banquet table with my brothers and my sisters and my king. That's good. I'm not there yet, and the now may be way harder than I could ever imagine. but I know where we're headed. And because of that, I can walk in peace and joy no matter what storms swirl around me. Hallelujah. And when the evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. People who were crucified weren't typically buried. They were those who had defied Rome, and so to give them that honor made it look like you could be defying Rome as well. So oftentimes they would, the bodies would remain exposed, and they'd be eaten by dogs and birds. Joseph of Arimathea was part of the Jewish council, many of whom who had just been accusing and blaspheming Jesus. He stepped out in front of them and in front of Rome and said, I want that body. And when you pull a body off the cross, you are covered in the blood and the gore. Keep in mind, for a Jewish person, even touching the outside of a tomb would make you ceremonially unclean, much less this level of contact with death. Mark tells us that he showed courage, and he certainly did. He risked his reputation, his his position, his ability to operate in society, his freedom, his very life, he stood up and he said, I'm with him. That's my king. Yeah. To stand up in front of everyone and say, here is where my first allegiance lies. Not to a political faction, not to a religious group, not to my friends and coworkers, not even to my own safety and comfort. My first allegiance is to a king and a kingdom because I've seen what those other kingdoms look like. I've seen what they bring with them what they bring with them, and when I compare it to what Jesus brings, there's no comparison. There's no debate. This is my king. Everybody go ahead and stand. So, despite the bleak language of Mark, he doesn't ever write a phrase that is only painful. Or terrible or daunting, nor does he depict trials that only lead to despair. Every time he gives us an image of wilderness, it's coupled with an image of comfort or hope. Trevor, you want to go ahead and come? John the Baptist eats locusts and wild honey. When sin is confessed, cleansing is received. When heaven is torn apart, a dove descends. Jesus goes into the wilderness and he encounters both, both beasts and angels. Sometimes it's hard to see it, but hope is always there. Yeah, there's a lot of darkness and pain in Mark 15. It ends with the burial of the one who so many had believed was the Messiah, the one who's going to make a difference. But even while he was dying, he was pointing us towards hope. He was pointing us towards the good news. And you should come back next week because Graydon's going to tell you all about it. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) Some of you may have felt like you haven't had hope in a long time. You feel so alone because you don't think anyone could understand what you're going through. If you need encouragement or somebody to introduce you to the one who knows your suffering, who knows pain, who knows hurt and betrayal and loss, but still brings hope, we invite you to find somebody to pray with this morning. Some of you may be realizing that there is hurt that you've been holding on to for so long. You've tried circumventing it, you've tried shortcutting it, but it's still there because the thought of actually working through it sounds so hard. Let us pray through it with you. If you've been in a place of suffering for a long time and you are just worn out, if you desperately want to live your life in a way where it provides a witness of the goodness of God, but you are just so weary, come and let somebody pray with you. Let us pray for a joy that transcends circumstances. Let us pray for fresh strength. Let us continue to pray for healing and for a change of circumstances, but hold you up as we pray. But even here, we will praise you, God. Even here, we will give you glory. If you need prayer for anything at all, we encourage you to find somebody around you and pray together as we sing together.